You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the upcoming visit of our President Herzog to the United States, to the American administration, and to the American Congress. When President Herzog last visited Washington, that was back in last October, the tone of his visit was more or less what you could call business as usual. The old kind of speeches are made about the enduring alliance between Israel and the United States. Uh, there is condemnation of anti-Israel bias in international forums. All the standard things were said at the time. But when Herzog returns to Israel this week, between the last visit and this visit, Benjamin Netanyahu scored a major victory in the November Knesset elections, and there is a different government sitting in Israel today than when the last time our president visited the United States. And also, under the new government in June last month, the Israeli government announced plans to build 5,700 new settlement homes in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria. And uh, this is something that a lot of the people in the government in the United States do not like. So there's going to be a certain amount of tension there. However, over and above this, there's something else. There are a number of uh, members of Congress who are very anti-Israel. One is, for example, Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. She's a Democrat. And she announced last week the, uh, she wrote a bunch of uh, furious messages and tweets that she would boycott President Herzog's address to a joint session of the United States Congress set for this week. She wrote, and I quote, There is no way in hell I am attending the joint session address from a president whose country has banned me and denied Rashiba Tlaib, another congresswoman, the ability to see her grandmother. That's what Representative Ilhan Omar writes. Now, what was she referring to? Back in 2019, she uh, was a decision was made not to let her and her colleague from Michigan into Israel under a law a law here in Israel allowing the government to bar the entry of people who support BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Against Israel. At that time, the U.S. ambassador was David Friedman, and he issued a statement, and he said, and I quote, the United States supports and respects the decision of the government of Israel 
to deny entries, entry to Talib Omar delegation. The BDS movement against Israel is not free speech. Rather, it is no less than economic warfare designed to delegitimize and ultimately to destroy the Jewish state. Israel properly has enacted laws to bar entry of BDS activists under the circumstances, and it is every, Israel has every right to protect its borders against those activists as the same manner as would bar entrance with more conventional weapons. This trip, pure and simple, is nothing more than an effort to fuel the BDS engine that Congresswomen Tlaib and Or so vigorously support. Like the United States, Israel is a nation of laws. We support Israel's application of its laws in this case, unquote. That's the American ambassador supporting Israel's decision not to allow these two uh, congressmen who support the BDS movement into Israel. Now, the main points of Friedman's response, which is was last year, almost two years ago, actually, the, the points are still valid. Omar, Talayev, and other members of the certain wing of the Democrat Party who've announced their intention not to go to Herzog's speech are not interested in learning about the reality in Israel. They simply want to push a narrative that is anti-Israel. This group, including a few uh, more other congressmen, called the Squad, it's known as the Squad, it does not miss a chance to say bad things about it is Israel, and they also apparently don't want to hear anything that might clash with their views about Israel. Now, the our president Herzog used to be the head of the Labor Party. But since he's become president, he's taken on a very non-political position, and he is a very dignified gentleman. Even without seeing any, without seeing any advanced copies of what he's going to say, it's reasonable to assume that whatever he will have to say will concentrate primarily on the things that we share with the United States. We have shared values, we have shared interests, and he will probably stress the mutual strategic importance of the alliance between two countries that have the same values. Now, the, uh, he will, he, I, I am uh, preparing this program on Tuesday, the president is going to be speak on Wednesday, and uh, this program is going to be broadcast on Thursday. So actually, what I'm saying is what I think the president will talk about, and when my program is finally broadcast, it will be a reality. But I, I don't think it would be any different than, than what I'm predicting. So it, 
people like the groups that belong to the squad are simply not interested in wanting to hear anything positive about Israel. Because what our president will be presenting is a message of peace, and he'll talk about friendship with the United States, and um, they, they don't want to hear any of these things. Now, it's interesting, the Republican leaders invited Prime Minister Netanyahu to, to speak to Congress back in 2015. That's quite a while ago. And he got up and he spoke about the dangers of the Iran deal. So uh, I still remember that speech. I remember he get up and he drew a picture of a bomb, how close the Iranians are to getting a bomb. And that was back in 2015. Now, when he spoke to Congress, some Democrats chose not to come to Congress to hear the speech because at that time the president was Obama and they perceived um, Netanyahu's speech as the snub of Obama. Now, that our prime minister was Netanyahu. The prime minister is a political position. He belongs to a party. He's elected uh, as a political leader. However, Herzog is the president of the state of Israel. The president of the state of Israel, the presidency, is not a political position. The presidency represents Israel as the head of state. Now, it is true that in previously he was the head of the Labour Party, and it's true that he led the opposition to Netanyahu, and he also headed the Israeli peace camp. Now, now today, he's been invited by the entire congress congressional leadership, both the Republicans and the Democrats, and he'll be meeting with President Joe Biden during his visit to Washington. Now, so this group of Democrats, the squad, who publicly declared her intention to skip his speech, are sending a very clear message. They are boycotting the state of Israel. They support BDS. In a sense, boycotting his speech is essentially an arm of BDS. The, the, these people are boycotting not the Israeli government, not the, the actions or the policies of the Israeli government. They're boycotting the entire country when they are boycotting our president. So it is essentially part of an ugly cancer culture targeting Israel, and it's his form of BDS. Now, of course, thank heaven, the overwhelming majority of Congress is supportive of the American-Israeli uh, alliance, and the, the majority of Congress, almost a full majority, I'm sure, will attend the meeting. It's interesting. The, the Democratic leader of the uh, House of Representatives uh, made a comment last Friday 
He said, President Herzog has been a force for good in Israeli society, and because Israel is such an important part of the Middle East, because we have such a special relationship with Israel, and because Israel is an important part of the global community, I look forward to welcoming him with open arms when he comes to speak before Congress next Wednesday. He said that last Friday. Now, uh, as I said before, my program will be, be broadcast on Thursday, which is the day after the speech. So the listeners will already know what our president said. But it's interesting that there are members of the U.S. Congress who support boycotting of Israel, and they're raising the, the, the level of their boycott to even boycotting the president of the state of Israel, who represents our entire country. And I think that is a very shameful act for them to do so. And it doesn't speak well for members of the American Congress. I want to go on to a different topic, but again, it has to do with Israel's relationship uh, with its neighbors. The uh, There are tremendous environmental challenges that we have here in the Middle East, and these challenges are creating new priorities for countries in the Middle East and the Mediterranean, and it is increasing cross-border cooperation, including between Israel and a number of Arab countries. Now, such cooperation can exist can assist in tackling climate change because these climate change has to be approached on a regional and global basis. And the, the, by working together to, uh, to uh, minimize the problems of climate change, can bring these countries together and essentially foster regional stability, maintain and expand peace and normalization, and the bottom line is to increase prosperity and economic developments for the whole area. The Abraham Accords were signed between Israel and a number of Arab nations, so they, this has created new opportunities for regional, re, re, regional and cooperation concerning the environment uh, and cooperation between Israel and Israel's neighbors. Now, it's interesting. There's something called the 27th and 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference. And uh, these summits are held in the Middle East in Egypt and in the United Arab Emirates, and they help such cooperation evolve. In addition to this, Israel and several Arab states, like Morocco and the United Arab Emirates, have signed bilateral agreements so far for cooperation on environmental-related issues. This is something that doesn't get big headlines. For example, there's something called Israel, Jordan, United Arab Emirates water electricity swap deal, 
and the issue of Morocco-European Union water dialogue. These things you don't hear much about. They don't get the big headlines. These things have been launched, and there are a number of multilateral mechanisms and initiatives. Uh, the um, Something called the Mediterranean, the East Mediterranean Gas Forum, East Mediterranean and Middle East Climate Change Initiative, and all these things that you don't hear much about if you're not involved, they don't get big headlines. These things enable Israel and its neighbors to jointly engage in a, a problem that we all have, and that is climate change. And these things are happening, I guess you could say, in the headlines. Now, our president, Herzog, who is visiting Washington this week, has called for regional regional our, 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 our environmental cooperation when he visited these other countries and he introduced what he called a visionary concept of renewable Middle East based on inclusive regional frameworks. The international community has a clear interest in enhancing regional environmental cooperation between Israel and its neighbors. It's really something important because it, it is something that deals with the entire region, not with each individual country. Now, it would be nice if the United States and Europe, for example, can uh, provide the cooperative endeavors like funding and technological assistance uh, with training and expertise and service benefactors to ensure success of this regional cooperation. So that that's really important. And what they're really focusing on is real tangible benefits. They're trying to encourage reasonable regional environmental cooperation, and that's good. The, because uh, these are initiatives that addresses problems that face all the countries in the area, and by working together, they can help, and uh, I don't say to resolve these problems, because the weather remains the weather, but come up with ideas that help all the countries in the area. So by encouraging multilateralism and inclusivity, it's good. It, it helps cooperation between countries in areas that are of extreme importance to those countries. So uh, that's interesting because it could well be by cooperating about the environment, they'll also invest in civil society society, and between government officials and uh, companies in the various countries that are working on resolving climate problems. They'll cooperate with each other. So it could well be that directing our mutual efforts to resolving a mutual climate problem will help uh, ensure uh, uh, the stability of the peace here in the Middle East. That's something, as I said before, it doesn't get big, big 
big headlines is this old saying that everybody talks about the weather. Nobody does anything about it. What we're trying to do here in the Middle East is we're trying to do something about it the weather in a cooperative way that will help our relationship with the countries in this area. Something that was never even thought of years ago, but it could well be that that, uh, the weather might be a form of uh, encouraging cooperation between countries that have had haven't been friendly for many many years. Maybe uh, maybe we could call the cooperation to be between the countries as uh, simply good weather. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the the way that um, newspapers around the world and uh, reports about Israel use the word occupy when they're talking about the area which we call Judea and Samaria. It's generally known as the West Bank. Back in the beginning of July, Uh, There was a major article in the New York Times, and it began by saying Israel's military uh, had withdrawn from the occupied West Bank city of Jenin after a large-scale incursion. So in a sense, it's been called out that this is what you call an oxymoron. An oxymoron is a combination of contradictory words. Now, according to the newspapers outside the country, particularly the New York Times, Jenin is occupied by the Israelis. If you look at the map, it's right almost smack in the center of the land west of the Jordan River. But They say that the Israelis did a large-scale incursion, and then they withdrew. Now, if they're occupying the city, they wouldn't be invading it, and they wouldn't be withdrawing from it. They would be there all the time. That's the definition of occupation. But they're not. The Israeli army goes into those areas to do away with terrorist nests, And then they leave. Now, there was a time when Israelis did indeed occupy Jenin. From 1967 to 1995, there was an Israeli military governor and a military administration that ruled the city of Jenin. There were also Israeli troops patrolling the streets and keeping order. And I've been there myself when I served in the uh, reserves in the Israeli Defense Forces. I've been in Jenin. It's not pleasant being there, by the way. You have all these people looking at you like they want to kill you. But that's a story unto itself. As part of the Oslo II agreement, 
which was back in 1995, the Israelis withdrew all their governors and all their military administrators and all their troops were uh, from these areas where about 98% of the Palestinian Arabs reside, not only Jinnin, but the whole area around it. So the indeed they occupied it for a while right after the war, but they they left at the time of the Oslo II agreement in September 1995. However, according to newspapers like the Times, the uh, they talk about Israel occupying Palestinian areas, and that's because Israel went in there to do away with the terrorist groups. They weren't occupying it, so. There's, there's no occupation of Palestinian cities. If you look at the maps of what's called Palestine that are used by the Palestinian Authority and its offices and schools and news media, they show all of Israel, Israel, as occupied Palestine. If you read the official platforms of Hamas or Fatah or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or any of the other terrorist groups, they all describe Israel as occupied Palestine. Statements by Palestinian Arab leaders routine, routinely use the word occupation in place of Israel. Uh, they don't use the word occupation to describe the reality on the ground for Palestinian Arabs. They use it as a euphemism for the state of Israel as a way of saying that Israel's presence in Tel Aviv and Haifa, for example, their very existence is an illegitimate occupation of Arab land. So, the, an American journalist who sympathized with the Palestinian cause talk about occupation when Israel goes into those Palestinian cities to get rid of the terrorists. The because of Israel, according to these newspapers and these opinion makers, according to them, if Israel's an occupier, then Israel's to blame for the absence of a peace in this area. If Israel is occupying Arab territory, then Arab violence seems to be justified, or at least understandable. If, if still in an Israeli occupation, according to these newspapers, then the Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria, people like my own family and myself, can be demonized because they're the instruments of an occupation. The word occupation itself is sort of a dirty word. So perpetuating the occupation accusation depends on people not talking about it. Critics of Israel count on interviewers not asking them to explain what, who's occupying what. The problem with trying to sustain the myth of occupation is they can't keep pretending forever. Little by little, people will start asking questions. Visitors to Palestinian Arab cities will wonder where all the Israeli occupation troops are. There aren't any. Some uninformed journalists will request to interview the Israeli military governor of occupied Jenin, only to be told that the governor left many years ago. 
may be a curious congressman visiting some Palestinian Arab city will ask why the only soldiers in the town seem to be from the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Where are all the Israeli occupiers? And this isn't a matter of semantics. It goes to the very nature of the Arab-Israeli conflict today. It reminds us that the Palestinian Arab war against Israel is not over the occupation of Jenin or Shechem, it's rather the occupation of Tel Aviv and Haifa, according to the Palestinians. So the only occupation that the Palestinians see is the occupation of any land west of the Jordan River, which is called Israel, that they call occupation. Israel, on the other hand, is not occupying anything. That's the way it is. So uh, along these same lines, I want to say something. The uh, the uh, Israel recently announced that we're going to build more homes for Jews in Judea and Samaria, the area that the world commonly calls the West Bank. Now, a spokesman for the American State Department named Matthew Miller said, and I quote, the United States is deeply troubled by Israel's decision to promote uh, approximately 4,500 housing units in the West Bank and by reports of changes in the administration of the settlements that accelerate the planning and approval of construction. We, meaning the State Department, U.S. State Department, oppose the expansion of settlements and unilateral actions that constitute an obstacle to peace and make a two-state solution more difficult to achieve, unquote. Now, this is not the first time, and probably not the last time, that America will object to homes being built in Judea and Samaria by Jews. In fact, every American administration since President Carter including both Democrats and Republicans, have objected to Israel's settlement building and said that they are unproductive. Many have even called them Israeli settlements an obstacle to peace. This apparently is the uh, current position of the Biden administrations. But interestingly enough, Objections to Israelis building in those areas have, have not stopped Israel from doing so, and hopefully it never will. The argument, the very argument, that Jews living and building and developing homes and towns in Judea and Samaria are an obstacle to peace is based on a misconception that Jews continue to build on the land of Israel they are predetermined the final borders, and therefore they will derail the two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. By the way, and anybody who visits Judea and Samaria knows that in those areas where there are businesses and where there are factories, that many, if not most, of the workers in these Jewish factories are Arabs. They're making a very good living in these areas, working for Jewish companies in Jewish settlements. 
something, jobs which are not provided by the Palestinians in the Palestinian areas. Many of the Arabs stand in line to get jobs in Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria because there are no jobs available under the Palestinian Authority. So not only is, is a Jewish settlement not an obstacle to peace, but indeed, at the present moment, it is providing incomes for Palestinians to feed their families. I've seen this all over Judea and Samaria. In particular, I myself lived in Karnashomron, right across from an Arab village, and many of the Arabs in that village work in the Jewish settlements because there was work and the salaries were good. So the, the argument that uh, uh, Jews living in building in Judea and Samaria is simply wrong. It's good for the Jews and it's good for the, uh, for the Arabs. So this line of reasoning that there's going to be a two-state solution in the near future is simply wrong. One preposition is built on another preposition, all the while assuming there's no other way to solve this problem. This problem has been lasting since the, since the Six-Day War, and there is no solution in sight. An honest look at what's holding up peace between Palestinians and Israelis is clear. Palestinian refusal to negotiate sincerely and the Palestinian support of terrorism. That's what's holding up the peace. If Palestinians would cease all terror attacks and enter into really honest negotiations with Israel, some kind of peace deal could be reached. It's Palestinian intransigence that's been the obstacle to peace. And the very fact that even if there was a two-state solution and it came into being, why can Jews not live in an Arab state? Not that I'm saying I would particularly want to live there, but take, for example, the factor more than a million Arabs living in Palestine. I'm sorry, living in Israel, living in the state of Israel. Why shouldn't Jews be, be able to live in a state of Palestine? Why does the Palestinian state have to be Judenrein, free of Jews? It makes no sense whatsoever. The uh, Recently, the Israeli prime minister was interviewed on Sky News, and they pushed him on, uh, on uh, what, what pushed him. They said that the Jewish communities uh, are an obstacle to peace. And uh, Netanyahu responded, what you're saying is that if a Jew buys property on private land and wants to live in areas next to Palestinians, you're saying that's a criminal action. We have to sanitize the area of Jews to make it ethnically cleansed. In other words, why, why if there were an Arab state, could Jews not live there? I'm not saying I would want to live there, but that's not the point. Why do a million Arabs are be citizens of Israel, they live in Israel, they work in, in Israel, and, they, and on the other hand, it's, it's, we say it's not possible that, it, that the Jews should live in a Palestinian state. That conception itself is a danger to peace.
the the idea that the presence of Jews in their ancestral homeland, which it is, and it's been our homeland for 3,000 years, the, the fact that Jews should not live there, that it should be Judenrein, that that is an obstacle to peace. Obviously, you want peace. The, uh, the, the Palestinians are intransigent. They support terror, and they'll suffer the consequences. Meanwhile, the Jews keep building. And uh, I remember when we first moved out to, uh, to Carnation-Rhone, which was uh, back in the late 1980s, there were very few Jewish communities, and we had to pass through a number of Arab villages just to get to our homes. Now I was, I was in, uh, I went to visit my daughter last week in the Carnation-Rhone, and a number of uh, highways have been built. I don't, I, I won't call them super highways, but they're really decent highways. And they avoid going through the center of Arab towns. And interestingly enough, they're not Jewish highways. The highways used by anybody who lives there, including the Arabs. So what what uh, Israel has done over the years since 1967 has improved the area, not just not just for the Jews who moved there, but for the Arabs who lived there. If you look at the way Judea and Samaria look today, just in terms of highways, decent highways, just in that subject alone, it's nowhere today what it was like in 1967. In those days, the roads were were back roads. It was hard to pass anybody. Today, they have almost super highways that are used both by the Arabs and by the Jews. So Israel has done a tremendous amount to improve that area for everybody. So to say that Jewish building or even Jewish highways is an obstacle to peace can only be said by people who have never been there and do not realize what the reality on the ground is. So when newspapers like the New York Times and other talk about Israelis occupying an area and being an obstacle to peace, they simply do not know what they're talking about. But they repeat these things. That is why whenever we have visitors to come to visit us, we take them out to those areas and we show them what it's actually like. And it's an eye-opener. If you just read the the newspapers, you get the idea, Israel's a terrible occupier. It is as far as you get from the truth. The uh, obviously we'll keep praying and dreaming for peace, and uh, maybe it'll. it'll, I don't know if we reached in my lifetime, not with the uh, nature of the Palestinian Authority, the education in the Palestinian areas, but the, the point I was making here is, is that those newspapers and those media who describe Israel as occupiers who are somehow uh, being mean to the local population are not only wrong, but is actually the opposite. Israel provides good highways, provides work for Palestinians, 
more than the Palestinian Authority does. And Israel is probably the worst kind of occupier you can imagine. An occupier is supposed to keep the people down. Israel, as an occupier, has done everything it can to improve the lives of the Palestinians living in those areas. As long as no, there is no peace in the foreseeable future, I'm sure that the Palestinians who live under under in Jewish areas and who and who work in Jewish industries are very happy about the situation. So again, the point I was trying to make in this whole section was the use of the word occupiers of the Israeli presence in Judea and Samaria is not simply a mistake. It is totally, totally wrong, and it should be corrected whenever possible. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the conflict that is now going on in Israel, about some of the changes in the rules. Every democracy needs checks and balances between the different branches of government. The courts check the power of the legislature and the executive to see that they are acting legally and constitutionally. There is also a need for a check on the court's power, especially as the other branches need to be re-elected and the courts do not. The judges essentially choose themselves. So what are the checks and balances on judges? In other countries, there are many checks on judges. Not everything is justiciable, meaning there are areas such as foreign relations and war that the courts will not get involved in. The courts will not hear a case unless the person petitioning the court was personally affected by the government. The court will only strike down a law that is unconstitutional. The court has a list of rules it uses to judge administrative actions. It can't just say, we don't like that action. In almost every democratic country, the courts are appointed by elected officials. All five of these limitations on the court do not exist in Israel, largely because they have been removed by the court's own decisions in the past few decades. That is why there is a need to reform the courts now in order to check their power. In Israel, we do not have a constitution. The rules of the game, which other countries have, we do not agree about the future of Israel and the vision of the future. 
But underlying that, we do not have the rules of the game on how to conduct our disputes. Whoever is in power can change the rules and do as they want. Perception at the moment in this country is, the, is that country is that the courts are liberal, the Knesset and government are conservative. We are battling who has the power. The reason people are so heated about this issue is not because of political theory, but the deep issues at the heart of our society. We are actually debating the nature of Israel's future. The vision for Israel, essentially the end goal of Zionism in our generation and in the generations to come. This is, is not a small matter. 75 years ago, as the state was about to be declared, one of the most hotly disputed issues was whether to include the name of God in the Declaration of Independence. No compromise seemed possible. The secular delegates wouldn't sign if God was included, while the religious counterparts wouldn't sign if God was omitted. The two groups celebrating the birth of a new Jewish state held, held radically different views concerning the significance and orientation of their momentous joint project. Ultimately, the signers agreed upon an ingenious solution. The state of the Declaration of the State of Israel was used to play the phrase placing our trust in Sur Israel. In other words, placing our trust in the rock of Israel. Now that is an ambiguous symbolic phrase that was open to all kinds of interpretations. This clash was a dark portent of the unstable nature of the state of Israel, in which a potentially explosive religious secular divide was hardwired into it from its very inception. While this inner tension has been simmering ever since, we're currently witnessing an almost unprecedented outburst of interdenominational conflict. Today, many secular Israelis view the essence of their identity as secular rather than Jewish and stridently reject the encroachment of religiosity into the public and private spheres. At the same time, religious communities have grown significantly in number, with many sectors utilize their newfound electoral power to become more assertive and dogmatic. And finally, in the middle, over a million immigrants from the so former Soviet Union are creating their own brand of secular subculture, with about a quarter of them living in no man's land of being Israeli, but not halakhically Jewish. So these tensions are greatly exacerbated by demographic trends. Religious communities are predictably growing at a much faster rate than the secular community, who tend to marry later, less often, and have fewer children. By 2050, 
it is projected more than 50% of first graders in Israeli elementary schools will be religious. Naturally, such trends cause great anxiety among secular Israelis, fueling their anger about the future character and composition of, of Israel. With all, the, all these tensions, I believe that mutual rapprochement and collaboration is possible amid all these difficulties a few signs of optimism shine through in particular two re recent public speeches gave hope for the possibility of reconciliation within israeli society yon galant a decorated military general and current minister of defense gave a poignant speech when elected to the current government. He himself is not religious. He acknowledged that it was only because of the tenacity of Orthodox Jews over two millennia of exile who held firm to the Torah and prayed three times a day while facing Jerusalem. That is the reason we have a state at all. In his eyes, it was the Torah the Talmud, the Siddur, and the traditional rabbinic leadership that preserved the Jewish people, that providing them with a national anchor which miraculously preserved them through centuries of persecution in the diaspora. Every one of us, he argued, can trace our ancestry to Jews who live traditional religious lifestyles. He, and he spoke of his grandparents and their families uh, going back four of, of generations, all of them dressed like members of the ultra-Orthodox ultra political faction in Israel today. So he said, in all my military enterprises, I focus on what I am fighting for, the protection of Medinat Israel and the Jewish people but also on my mission as an emissary of those generations who lived with the powerful presence of Hashem Tzvakot, the Lord of hosts. Ending with a word from Yeshayahu, Gallant insisted only through this traditional lens can we understand and explain our presence here in our homelands. Now, it is only possible to maintain a successful partnership between people who do not share the same value systems and perspectives through mutual appreciation. It's possible to see the good in each other and to value each other's contribution to the nation as a whole. By the way, um, uh, I, I found another powerful example of recognition and validation in an online video posted by a secular Israeli nurse who passionately defended the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox world. She insisted that she could no longer bear the, to demonize the religious community in much of the secular press, uh, and uh, she cited the large number of ultra-Orthodox Haredi volunteers as evidence of their value and contributions to society. For example, over 100,000 volunteers 
from the Haredi world work in organi organizations such as Zaka, Magen David, Adom, Hatzalah, Ezer Mitzion, Yad Sarah, and uh, among others that help people regardless anything. She also praised the immense value of their lifestyle of material modesty, their strong and stable family life, and their loyalty to Jewish tradition. These things are important. Now, while many demand that the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, commit themselves to national service, this nurse pointed out that many of them are already doing just that, although not through the traditional paths. That's a very interesting outlook. For example, it's quite often here in Jerusalem, where I live, you see motorcycles going by, uh, emergency motorcycles to help people. The drivers are Haredi Jews. Uh, whether they served in the army or not, I don't know. But they're doing tremendous national service in their private lives. So these two aspects reflect the idea of the ability to see and appreciate the good in others, particularly when they represent opposing sides of the political or religious spectrum. This quality is absolutely necessary on all sides. There's no two ways about it. We have a national rift right now. And the urgent healing of this national rift must begin here and will require the practice of mutual appreciation and respect by all sides. So obviously we pray that peace uh, and harmony will return to our people here in Israel. Right now it's a very uh, unrestful time. We are aware of it. But we have to keep on our eye on the goal, which is a safe and sound state of Israel. That is the bottom line. You know, and I want to add something to what I just said, a more general comment. We are a people with a long history. It's part, been part of the Jewish mission for the better part of 4,000 years. Jews found themselves many times in the front line of the defense of humanity. While there is freedom without order, anarchy, everyone is a potential victim. Jews played no special part in this history, but where there is order without freedom, like imperialism in all its guises, Jews has often been the primary primary targets because, because Jews are the people who more than any other have consistently refused to bow down to tyrants. And for 2,000 years, we did not have our own state. And that's why they were attacked by the empires of the ancient world in Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Greece, Rome, the Christian and Muslim theocratic empires of the Middle Ages, and the two greatest tyrannies of the modern world, Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. Now, 
Today there is a, a face of tyranny uh, in a political Islam in the form of Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah Tikra, Hezbollah, and Hamas that are creating havoc and destruction throughout the Middle East, the sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia. They constitute a real and present danger to the liberal democracies, not only of Israel, but also of Europe. And though Israel is almost a microscopic element in this global picture, it is once again in the front line. Why? Because Jews throughout history have recognized tyranny for what it is and have refused to be intimidated by power, threat, terror, and fear. Somehow, in the most dangerous region of the world, Israel has created a society of freedom and order, a free press, free elections, and an independent judiciary on the one hand, and constant innovation in the arts and sciences, agriculture, medicine, and technology on the other hand. Israel is not perfect. We admit that. The, By the way, the, uh, the Hebrew Bible is the most self-critical national literature in all history. So the, it's interesting, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes says, there's no one on earth who is so righteous that he does not only, does only right, never sins. But today's Israel has doing what Jews have been charged to do since it is a, the days of Moses, to create, to create freedom without anarchy and order without tyranny. If that puts Israel on the front line again, there's no nobler cause in which to be on the front line. So we are in the front line of really freedom. And if we're having an internal problem right now, hopefully good heads will get together and this where uh, this will pass. The if the uh, it's interesting, the uh, what what our, our Moses said thirty three centuries ago, he said choose life so that you and your children may live. That's what Moses said in the Torah. If Hamas were to do that, for one thing, the Palestinians of Gaza would have peace. Innocent lives would not be lost. Palestinian children would have a future. Because Israel did make that choice, it has created a society of order and freedom while all around it rage the godless fires of chaos and terror. And the we have to look into ourselves, know who we are, where we came from, and realize that the political conflicts of today are only temporary. We have to learn to compromise. Not everyone in a political uh, spectrum can get what they want. They will learn to compromise and we will get through this present period, which is, I think,
the most dangerous and unsettling since the founding of the state. There's no doubt that we are right now in the middle of a crisis. We can't get away from that. But hopefully the, the calm minds will realize that the future of the country depends on compromise. I think one of the problems we have is that the present government has a lot of members who have had no previous experience in being part of a ruling coalition. So they had all kind of desires, they made all kind of promises, but when you get into a position of power, you have to look carefully at all the things you said before, Look carefully at your opposition and decide what are the things that you can get done that make the most sense for society as a whole. You can't get all the things that you promised in your campaign. If every party got into office and got power and did everything that they had promised in their campaign, we would be in a terrible situation, really. So it is important for our politicians, many of whom are immature and really inexperienced, to sit down, calm down, make compromise as they have to, and we'll all be better for it. And so will our future. back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about something that you don't hear much about. It is the various programs that are held, that are, bring young people to Israel to learn about Israel. Here in Jerusalem, we see these buses quite often. They're carrying young people from the, what they call the Taglit Birthright Organization. And um, we're quite familiar with them because we live near downtown Jerusalem, near many of the historical and tourist places. And this is where they bring these young people. Now, the, the Taglit Birthright is a not-for-profit organization that offers free 10-day educational trips to Israel for young Jewish adults. For many of them, it is their first trip to Israel. And uh, there's also a uh, something called Onward Israel, and that was just established recently, I think in 2012. It's a program of the Jewish Agency for Israel and it now operates as a department of Taglid Birthright Israel, which started before that. Birthright Israel onward connects college students from all the way around the world, primarily with the United States, the, with internships in Israel. They're working in partnership with something called 
Masa Israel Journey. Now, they have very unique programs, and they put a lot of effort into them. They have an internship program called TAMID, T-A-M-I-D, Fellowship. It's an, a partner of the other programs. Uh, uh, unlike other programs, TAMID welcomes also non-Jews to live, work, and really explore Israel. So it is, it is for them a very inclusive experience. So the, uh, the uh, and this group, this Tamid group, is founded back by students back in 2008, and it's a business club that seeks to forge a strong connection between the next generation of business leaders in America and in Israel. So student members can choose to consult for Israeli startups, they research Israeli stocks, or they work with uh, Israeli tech companies. So since its inception at the University of Michigan, Tamid has expanded to include thousands of student members across 61 campuses worldwide. It's really very interesting. Many of these chapters uh, were initiated by non-Jews and never had any Jewish members. Non-Jewish participants from these universities, as well as others from different universities, are interviewed. Uh, they apply, they're interviewed, and they come to Israel because Israel is a hub of innovation and provides incredible opportunities for personal and professional growth, which is really a, something you don't hear much about. So it's interesting, the realization that there are non-Jews who actively seek and associate with Israel is in itself of interest. Because despite the abundance of misinformation in the news and the potential, potential backlash they might face from friends upon returning to their campus from Israel, these people who come on these trips still make the choice to participate in this fellowship. And that really is something. We need more programs like this. These programs highlight the objective and logical strengths of Israel because Israel particularly has a very thriving high-tech sector. They present Israel as an attractive nation worthy of international support and they present a more truthful reality of Israel that college students can learn about. The, there are a lot of people who come in these programs who lack any prior connection to Israel. And so the idea is to educate them to uh, counter the detrimental effects of BDS on their campuses. If they have firsthand experience in Israel, these people who come on these programs can challenge and reshape misconceptions about Israel, even though even seemingly trivial antidotes uh, are important. So 
the, the programs like this help us rewrite the common narrative that surrounds Israel and the media. And when it comes from non-Jews, it holds even greater weight and credibility. Non-Jewish participants in these programs engage with Israel from a business perspective. So they offer a fresh and objective lens that transcends religious and political uh, affiliation. So really, these programs provide a platform for individuals, even non-Jews, to experience Israel beyond preconceived notions and stereotypes and promote a nuanced understanding of what Israel is really about. So they, it essentially built bridges at that through which is good by empowering non-Jewish individuals to advocate for Israel based on their personal experiences, we challenge the notion that support for Israel is solely rooted in religious or ethnic identity. These people who come on these programs are ambassadors who can effectively counter the harmful narratives propagated by the BDS movement and contribute to a more accurate and a more nuanced perception of Israel on the campuses they go back to. So these programs like Taglit Birthright and like um, this this um, n this other one, Tami, T-M-I-D, these, which, which, as I said, brings non-Jews, are a serious effort to get people who had absolutely no knowledge of Israel before to see what Israel is like and to see Israel on a level of their own interest, particularly if they're young people involved in business. So these programs which don't get a big headline or do a great service for Israel, I see their buses all the time now. I remember during the pandemic, we didn't see any, and now they're back again. Uh, I live not far from a number of uh, hotels here in Jerusalem. And also, of course, I live close to many of the historical sites. So we now see these uh, buses in abundance. As a matter of fact, I live right across from uh, one of the major hotels. And as a result of these buses, I have trouble finding parking place. So that's what brought this uh, subject to my mind. And I wanted to share it with the listeners. Another subject that I want to talk, touch upon is the uh, media reporting about Israel. When it comes to media reporting about Israel and the Middle East in general, there is a trend toward misinformation that reflects uh, the indoctrination that reporters have experienced and their approach to the security concerns of the Jewish state. The recent reporting on the security situation in Jenin in the last two weeks is a reflection of a lot of bias in the media. Only by challenging these biases can we find meaningful ways to be liberated 
from hostility on the part of the media. What happened in Jenin several weeks ago when the Israeli army went in for a number of days to wipe out the terrorist groups and get rid of their stockpiles of weapons is very important. The city of Jenin itself, located right, look at the map, right in the heart of the western part of Eretz Israel, has endured a long cycle of domination going back to the Romans. And now they have terrorists who are backed by Iran. The, the city, by the way, was known as Ein Ganim historically. It holds a rich history that spans numerous occupiers from the Romans to the Crusaders, the Ottomans, the British, Jordanians, and now to Iranian-backed terrorists. This city has endured a long cycle of domination and control, and it, uh, it, its strategic location has made it of great importance. Between 1948 and 1967, the Jordanians took control of Jenin and established a settlement nearby for those displaced by the war in between uh, Israel and the Arabs uh, back in 1948. However, like many occupying powers, the Jordanians neglected the well-being and integration of those under their control. Instead, they fostered a victim mentality and they fueled hatred toward Jews, opting for the easier path of turning people into refugees. They're consumed and educated by hatred of Israel instead of being embraced as fellow human beings. So they have had decades of indoctrination with Jew hatred. The, um, the, an entire generation of Arabs from 1948 to 1967 grew up under Jordanian rule. And they, the education essentially uh, spawned generations of recruits for terrorism perpetuating violence and thwarting opportunities for a peaceful resolution. So, the, uh, despite chances for many to leave the so-called refugee camps and lead normal lives, the brainwashing and indoctrination by Jew haters made such progress impossible. The, uh, after the Oslo Accords, the administration of Jenin fell under the Palestinian Authority's control. However, for those that had been indoctrinated before, and now Yasser Arafat and the PLO were just as eager to indoctrinate the people against the way. So that paved the way for Iranian-backed terrorist groups to seize power in Jenin. Over the, over the last two decades, just the last two decades, it is quite important 
to provide this historical context as I just did, because the mainstream medium neglects these facts, and instead, what is portrayed uh, on the on uh, TV and the online outlets are distorted narratives, where it looks like bloodthirsty Jews are depicted in entering Janim to harm children and destroy the homes of innocent civilians. These reports fail to acknowledge the reality that these young individuals, these Arabs, are often exploited as armed combatants by Hamas and other Iranian proxies. Moreover, the buildings targeted are often arms depots storing weapons and explosives from Iran. It's interesting, by the way, if you think about it, people like in the United States, they're accustomed to crimes on a small scale. They view violent acts and murder as minor risks that affect only a few individuals rather than the whole of society. Even crimes with large societal impacts are often regarded as quality of life issues rather than existential threats. The rare terrorist attacks that occur are dismissed as aberrations and they're quickly forgotten. So the absence of direct experience with brainwashed genocidal terrorists seeking to eradicate an entire people leads to privileged reporting by the media that often invokes involves moral equivalence where none exists. The same Jew-hating indoctrination that's plagued generations in places like Jenin's has permeated Western society as indoctrination knows no boundaries and spreads rapidly, particularly today in the digital age. So what happens is that this creates and normalizes a biased and distorted narrative that stands reality on its head. Jews are portrayed as occupiers, but they're not. This is our indigenous homeland, while Arabs, especially ones involved in acts of violence, are portrayed in the media as victims. So this victim mentality has spread far and wide from Arab reporting to the institutions that employ and collaborate with them, aided by foreign funding that has allowed indoctrination to flourish within the media and society itself. So what happens is that Jew hatred has become normalized, particularly within the media. So the Islamic groups, by the way, have long understood that once they indoctrinate the media and the education systems, it becomes easier to manipulate the masses. So there are those who are simply susceptible to this manipulation. It is, why? I I really don't know. 
because maybe because suffering inflicted on others isn't their problem. So, and maybe it simply aligns with the age-old stereotype of blaming the Jews. They failed to grasp the reality of what we have here in Israel, of having rockets launched at our homes by terrorists whose sole aim is genocide. These people who are, who, uh, who are, who are subject to the uh, media can't comprehend the fear of walking down their own streets. Uncertainly, if today will be the day they're targeted for execution based solely on their identity. They don't tuck their kids into bed in bomb shelters or worry about a hostile army just a few miles away. They're not plagued by mobs marching in the streets advocating for, for intifada. So what happens is these media unwittingly, perhaps, contribute to the indoctrination, they glamorize terrorists, and indirectly fund them through government support. So, there are the because of this, they're pretty much blind to the, the sufferings caused by us in Israel, suffering to the Jewish people, which has persisted throughout history. To combat this bias and to combat this privilege, it has to be called out explicitly. Merely presenting facts will not be efficient. What they really need, I think, is a profound cultural shift, one that exposes the bias that have shaped false narratives. So, throughout history, other minority groups have fought against privilege and bias, and they've done tremendous gains. So we have to strive for the same thing for the state of Israel our identity, our religion, our culture, and our indigenous homeland essentially are all at stake. So it's essential to challenge and denormalize systematic bias while fighting for our rights to be free from hatred and terror. We have to see to it that we counteract what's being done in the media. I, I, I think it properly, I guess it falls pretty much on our foreign affairs ministry to see to it that people are sent outside the country to give uh, our side, our position, and what's happening. One of the worst problems we have in Israel is the fact that we don't represent ourselves properly outside the country. I saw that when I uh, myself represented Israel 40 years ago in the United States. There were so many people, intelligent people, educated people, who had simply no idea what Israel was all about and what our enemies were trying to do to us. And it's a responsibility of the state of Israel to see to it that this message goes out we have to counterbalance the media, the media bias against us. It's a tough subject, but I wanted to bring it up because it's an ongoing subject, and it's one of the fronts in our in our war for survival. 
Anyhow, thanks for listening. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off.